you, Heidi. A little pressure on me there, though. So before I read the, our text this morning, let's pray for God's light. Gracious Lord, we pray this morning that you would show us Christ, show us your glory, you would reveal yourself to us through the Word and through the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, but before I read that text, there's a problem I need to address in the church, and it's a problem primarily related to the women of the church. Sadly, my own wife is part of this problem. I have my letter of resignation already drafted in case this goes poorly. <laughs> yeah, there's a problem here because, you know, if I look in the scriptures here, I look out at the congregation, I look out at the women of the congregation, and None of you have your heads covered. But it says right here in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled, disgraces her head. Really, we have a problem, right? Later on, it talks about men. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? Looking at you, Singleton. What's that about? No retelling of jokes in the <laughs> Now I'm joking here, obviously, but I'm not actually being flippant. I'm trying to make a real point. And my point is sometimes scripture is plain. We have a doctrine in the Reformed faith called perspicuity, perspicuity of scripture. And that doctrine teaches that scripture, when it speaks all that is necessary for faith and life, all that is about salvation, it is plain, and it can be accessed by anyone. But then there are other parts of Scripture which are more complicated, which are not as clear, and one of the dangers we have is the danger of uh, what R.C. Sproul called the heresy of the first glance, right? To, to look at something without doing careful exegesis, particularly those complicated areas of Scripture I'm going to take them on face level, to take them at a first glance. Some texts simply need more work than others to understand. And of course, the First Corinthians text is one of those. And the text we're looking at this morning is another. This is a challenging text. And I acknowledge as I read it this morning that it will not even be easy to hear for some of you. I just would ask you to hang with me this morning. Wait. To the end. Don't tune out just quite yet. For this too is the word of the Lord. It just needs a little bit more explaining. So here now, the word of the Lord. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, which is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, 
Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's quite a text, right? Anyone like to volunteer to preach this morning? (laughs) Take it over. (laughs) Didn't think so. Well, the good news uh, about my sermon is that I will be only looking at particularly one verse of this text. I won't need to deal with all of the complexity of this text, and there is much there that is complex. But by looking at just one verse, I'm not taking the easy way out. For the one verse we'll be looking at this morning was described by the Greek scholar William Mounts as, quote, one of the strangest verses in the New Testament. That's the verse we'll be looking at. It's verse 15 of that text, 1 Timothy 2, verse 15, and here is the verse we'll be focusing on. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And the goal of my sermon will be to try to grasp the meaning of that verse. Does that mean? What does it mean for us today? And in order to do that, we need to answer three fundamental questions, three critical questions about that verse. We need to answer the question, who is the she in the verse? The identity of the woman or women, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Who is the she? The second question is, what's the birth? What is the nature of the childbearing or childbirth being referred to in the text? And the third question is, what is the nature of the salvation being referred to here, right? She will be saved through childbearing. What is the nature of that salvation that will come by childbearing? Three questions. And the methodology I will use will be by looking at the three major, most prevalent views, there's actually about 10 of them, uh, but the three major ones this morning, because it's going to be long enough of a sermon, you don't want to look at 10 of these, but I consolidated them to the three major ones. I want to look at each of those three views, how this text has been interpreted, and then in each case, answer how those views answer those three questions, and then I want to consider what it means for us. So three views, three questions, what it means for us. That's our outline. Now, before I get into that, just a little bit about the background of this text, a little bit about the context to situate ourselves in the situation that comes about in this, in this passage. The Apostle Paul is the author of this epistle. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is one of those, like a protege. And he's trying to help Timothy organize the church At Ephesus, Paul is absent from the church, so he's writing a very personal, a very practical, and a very pastoral epistle. That's why we refer to these as the pastorals. And one of the big problems in this church was a group of false teachers. And based on the biblical evidence and some extra biblical evidence, we believe that there was a problem in Ephesus where this was taking place, and it was a uniquely localized problem to Ephesus. Paul was dealing with a problem in a church, not in the church. 
And that false teaching that was there particularly preyed upon and was promulgated by women in the church. So the women were both teachers of the false teaching, and they were also the target of the false teaching. And so Paul addresses in this epistle women and issues around women more than in any other in the New Testament. Philip Payne, a scholar, notes that no other book of the Bible has a higher proportion of verses focused specifically on problems regarding women, 21 of the 113 verses, and if so, our text is part of that this morning. That's why there is such a focus here on women, because there was a problem in this church, a local problem, a problem in Ephesus, a problem that targeted and was taught by primarily women. So that's the context behind this strangest of verses in the New Testament. And keeping that in mind, let's look at the three views of how this has been interpreted. The first view is what I refer to as the medical insurance view, for lack of a better way to refer to it. And this view understands that strange verse as teaching that women will be physically, Christian women will be physically protected, medically protected, if you will, through childbirth, during childbirth. The Common English Bible translates the verse with this interpretation. Verse 15 in the Common English Bible says, But a wife will be brought safely through childbirth if they both continue in faith, love, holiness, together with self-control. It's kind of this idea that the promise here is one of physical protection and health. I have to admit, this is the view I find least persuasive, the least support for. I don't agree with it, but it is held and maintained by a variety of very respectable New Testament scholars. They hold to this view, and there's some reasons for that. There are some arguments in support of it. One, it deals with one of the biggest issues in the text, and that is, well, if this salvation is spiritual, if it's what we talk about is justification in Christ, how can something other than the work of Christ lead to salvation, right? If you were to understand the salvation here as spiritual, and childbirth leads to spiritual salvation, it seems like works salvation. And so by treating it as entirely a physical matter, you get around that problematic issue. And also it's fair to say that part of the false teaching there was around the Artemis cult, the temple of Artemis, the cult of Artemis, and part of the promise that Artemis gave to women was that they would be protected and their children would be protected. They would be protected in childbirth, and so the argument is Paul is playing off of that. But I can't really accept this view. I can't believe it's supported. One reason for that, why I reject it, is the exegetical reason that salvation in the scripture, although that word can be used for physical or medical saving, in the scripture, it's, it's not used that way. It's not used by Paul that way. It is used for salvation as we think about salvation, salvation in Christ. So it doesn't hold up. And then there's the empirical reality that not all Christian women are protected in childbirth. Not everyone survives through childbirth. So I think we should reject this view. But here's how it answers the three questions, this view. The she in the text is all Christian women. The birth is the act of common physical childbirth by Christian women. And the nature of the salvation 
is a physical protection, a physical deliverance, a medical deliverance. That's view number one. Pretty easy to grasp. I think pretty easy to dismiss. Well, let's look at the second view. This view I call the motherhood and apple pie view. Okay? This is kind of like the title view, if you will. This is very prevalent. The view posits that women uh, are spiritually saved at the last day by fulfilling, as Andreas Kostenberger puts it, quote, their God-ordained role in the domestic sphere, end quote. The idea here is that by fulfilling this role, bearing children, but also beyond that, this whole domestic role, what they argue is that word childbearing is acting as a figure of speech, what we call a synecdoche, which is where you have a part representing a much larger whole. And so they say that that childbearing is a stand-in for all of this domestic calling, this role of women according to them marrying, having children, managing the household well. And the New Living Translation kind of emphasizes that in its rendering of the verse. And I'll be reading into it the footnote that they use. It reads, but women will be saved by accepting their role as mothers, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. You get the sense there, right? It's salvation through fulfilling a domestic role. Now, there are several things in support of this particular interpretation. Uh, it does, the verse does seem to be speaking about a pattern of behavior, right? It talks about modesty. It talks about uh, faith and love and holiness. It seems to be speaking about something behavioral. There's a passage later in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.14, where, again, Paul talks to women in the church, young widows, and he talks about them to marry, bear children, manage their households, uh, speaks about this in a terms of a role or behavior. A third, there are uh, people, people who argue for this, say, well, this is not justification. They're not being saved by works of, of this role. What's being spoken of here is this final, last day vindication, like my good and faithful servant. You know, you've done a good job. This is what Christ is going to reward you for on the last day. It's kind of that end-time eschatological salvation. And that's how they create this argument and support. And while there is more, I think, to uh, this argument, there's more support for it, I think it should be rejected. Why do I think it should be rejected? Well, the one problem is that the word that they translate in the New Living Translation, but women will be saved, that word women is actually singular. It is she, as the New Revised Standard Version renders it. It is a singular as part of the verb there in salvation. It's not really about general or plural. It's about a singular woman. And the second reason I rejected is that the eschatological salvation argument doesn't really hold up exegetically because Paul, it is a future tense word for salvation. When Paul uses that word, he's talking about salvation in Christ. Salvation wrought by Christ, not by fulfilling a domestic role, but what Jesus did on his cross and his death and his resurrection and ascension. So uh, I don't hold to it because of that. And then finally, I don't hold to it because I think there's a better view. Third view, 
And that's what we're going to get to in a moment. But let's summarize this view by looking at how it answers the three questions. The motherhood and apple pie view answers who is the she? Who's the she? Again, it's all Christian women, according to this view. What's the birth? In this case, the birth is a figure of speech referring to a quote-unquote God-ordained role. And then finally, what is the nature of salvation? And well, it's spiritual, but it's not justification in Christ. It's this end time, well done, my good and faithful servant type of vindication for living the right type of life, fulfilling your role. That's the motherhood and apple pie view. Medical insurance view, the motherhood and apple pie view. The third view, one that I maintain is the correct view, and I'm obviously arguing persuasively. There are people, good evangelical, good scholars in all three of these camps. And my third view is the messianic view. The messianic view. And this view maintains that this text is not about women being physically saved through childbirth. It's not about women getting a well done for fulfilling your role at the end of times type of salvation. Rather, it is about an ancient promise. An ancient promise made to one woman about the birth of one child who brought spiritual salvation, true salvation to all the world. That what's being referred to here is the promise made to Eve in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You remember where that was spoken. We talk about that as the proto-gospel. It was spoken as a curse right after the fall. A curse pronounced upon the serpent. But in that curse was a promise, a hope given to the woman that a child would come and would crush the serpent's head. The Messiah would come. And of course, that child who reversed the curse is none other than Jesus Christ. And the reason I think this is right is, first of all, it solves that singular she problem, right? It seems to be referring to she will be saved in the singular. It is about one woman. It is about Eve. Eve is the she in the text. It solves the spiritual salvation problem. This isn't salvation by works. This isn't some type of physical salvation. This is an end time justification salvation. This is salvation as we know it in Jesus Christ. Through him. By him. It also fits the most natural reading of the text. If you could throw up the first slide I have there, Neil. If you can look at it here. In this text, the she here most logically refers to its immediate antecedent, Eve. Not all women, but a particular woman. Paul was talking about Adam and Eve. And I think he's still talking about Eve in this verse, as you can see. That's the most logical reading, natural reading of the text. And then if you look at the next slide, get that one up there. The they, you've got this weird thing in this verse, right? You go from, yet she will be saved through childbearing, singular, provided they, plural, continue in faith. What's going on? What's Paul doing? Well, the most logical way to read that is to refer that they back to Adam and Eve. She is Eve. The they is Adam and Eve. And um, you, can, you can take that down now. As Jared August 
writes in the most in, in a, a 2020 uh, issue of Themelios, he wrote an article about this, very good article, Jared August. He translates this verse this way. He paraphrases it. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. But Eve, verse 15, but Eve will be saved through the childbirth, so long as Adam and Eve should remain in faith and love and holiness and self-control. This verse fits the most natural reading of the text. And then finally, it also fits the Adam-Christ pattern. And this I owe to Jared August in that article I mentioned. It's really the contribution of the article to this whole argument. And that his point is this simply, that whenever Paul mentions Adam, he has Christ in mind. There are nine times in the New Testament that Adam is mentioned. There are five different passages in total, and each and every one of them. Paul mentions Adam, he has Christ in mind. You know of these parallels throughout Scripture. And the argument is, here Paul again, in mentioning Adam, also has Christ in mind. Christ in mind as the child born, the seed of the woman, the one who will save through childbearing. That is the messianic view. I think it's the right view. And it answers our questions this way. Who's the she in the verse? The she is Eve. What is the birth in the verse? The, ver the birth is the birth of the Messiah. What is the salvation referred to in the verse? It is the salvation that has come to all people through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It's salvation as we understand salvation, the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. I think that's the right view. You might say to me, okay, pastor, that was a really nice lesson. What does it mean to me? Why should I care about it? Well, I think this understanding of the text is helpful in two ways. First, it frees this text from being a battleground about women's roles, motherhood, and apple pie, right? It frees the text from its bondage to that debate. So much has been poured out over this text around that issue. And it also frees women from the bondage of the text itself, right? The misuse of this text, the way it has been abused in many ways. But second and most important, as all preaching, as all Scripture should do, it focuses our eyes on the main thing, on the most important thing, on the centrality of Jesus Christ as the hope of our salvation. We are saved by childbirth. The birth of a child. And we are about to enter the season of Advent. It begins next Sunday. It is a season in which we look forward to the celebration of the birth of of the seed of the woman, the birth of the Messiah. And I think this text should begin to stir our hope. The hope that was in Adam and Eve, their sense of expectation, of longing for this birth, this offspring who would come and crush the serpent's head. Adam and Eve were expectant when they heard that promise. They were waiting for Messiah to come. You can see it in Genesis 4, verse 1. This is what is written right after all of that. All of the curses laid out. And the promise we just read. 
Genesis 4.1, now the man, that is Adam, knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. He conceived and bore Cain, and saying, this is what Eve said, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. It's an odd phrase, isn't it? I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Why did Eve say that? Because she was reformed. I'm joking. Don't send me letters. She expected salvation by the power of God. She saw herself as part of this mission in which she had been drafted by the Lord to participate in the glory of salvation. I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Is this the one? Is this the one who will crush the serpent's head? She was expecting the child. It was not the child, of course. Generations later, the angel went to one named Mary. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Salvation through childbearing. And thus, after a long wait, Eve's hope is fulfilled in Mary's womb. And not just her hope, our hope. You could put that next picture up. I, I have this picture in my house. I love this picture. Of course, the Eve on the left. You see the serpent down below, having her hand on the belly of Mary. That's the gospel right there. That's the gospel being revealed. That's the covenant of grace, the promise of God that one would come. Born of a woman, born under the law, would crush the serpent's head. You can take that down, Neil. That's the beauty of this scripture. This text is not about degrading women. The exact opposite, if you take the time to understand it. It was the Gnostics, it was the false teachers who were degrading to women. This is from the Gospel of Thomas, the Gnostic Gospel, a false gospel, not Scripture. It ends with these words, Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the nonsense that Paul was confronting. The scripture teaches the full dignity of women. For despite her transgression with Adam, God specifically enlists the woman to fulfill the creation mandate. And to advance his covenant of grace, his plan of salvation. And God does this in an extraordinary way through what one commentator said is quintessentially a female act. Childbearing. Robert Wall puts it this way in his commentary. He says, Eve's story then is typological of every woman who when giving birth to a new life, a uniquely female experience, is awakened to a realization 
of her partnership with God, who has not abandoned her because of Jesus Christ. This text is about Jesus. This text is about salvation to all people. This text is good news. And even though that promised child has come, we are not so different than Adam and Eve because we sit between the parentheses of those two advents and we look forward to the coming of Christ again. His second advent. What God calls us to do is the same mission He gave to Adam and Eve in that text. He says, wait for Him, long for Him, live for Him, trust in Him, and you will be saved. That's the hope of the Gospel. Provide. We, you and me, continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news found in this text. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for the hope and the longing. We understand the aching of Adam and Eve and their hearts and for the generations who waited for the Messiah. For we too longingly await for his return to set all things right. The consummation of all that is. Help us as we enter this Advent season to look longingly back to the fulfillment of promises, but also forward to that which is to come when Messiah returns. Let us now live in this age as we wait with the faith and holiness and modesty and love you call us to in this Scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name.